Okay, well, tonight what I want to do is, since we're starting off, you're probably going to yawn when I say this, I want to start off by giving an overview of mindfulness as it's presented within the tradition a little bit more, rather than perhaps the mindfulness as you understand it within the eight-week programs, MBCT and MBSR. So that's what I want to do. And I want to kind of frame it. I'm not going to frame it in entirely Buddhist terms. I want to frame it in terms of partly our Western tradition as well, um, where thoughts around these issues that mindfulness, in a sense, is there to deal with or to help us to um, deal with um, has been, have been expressed over the centuries. So I want to start off, in a sense, with the problem. You know, Buddhism starts with a problem. Christina, I think, is going to give us a big talk about the problem. Um, <laughs> that's what you said. <laughs> and, as I told you, they can heckle. <laughs> but the, the problem, in a sense, is one I think is really succinctly summed up by a 17th century thinker, um, Blaise Pascal the um, French mathematician and philosopher. Some of you might have heard this quote, particularly if you've been to uh, things of mind before. But he says this, and I think it sums it up really, really well. So this will give us a kind of starting point, I think, for where we, I want to launch off. He says this. He says, we never keep to the present. We recall the past. We anticipate the future as if we found it too slow in coming, and we're trying to hurry it up, or we recall the past as if to stay it's too rapid flight. We are so unwise that we wander about in times that do not belong to us, and do not think of the only one that does. So vain that we dream of times that are not, and blindly flee the only one that is. The fact is, the present usually hurts. We thrust it out of sight because it distresses us. And, we've, we've, and if we find it enjoyable, we are sorry to see it slip away. We try to give it the support of the future and think, how are we going to arrange things over which we have no control for a time we're never going to be sure of reaching? Let each of us examine their thoughts. They will find them wholly concerned with the past or the future. We almost never think of the present. And if we do think of it, it is only to see what light it throws on our plans for the future. <laughs> the present is never our end. The past and the present are our means. The future alone our end. Thus, we never actually live, but hope to live. And since we're always planning how to be happy, it's absolutely inevitable that we shall never be so. I think it sums up the problem. <laughs> um, the present. Mindfulness is something about the present. I think we all know that, don't we? Before I launch in, in a sense to, well, okay, we've got a sense of the problem that we're never in the present, we're always in the future. We're always out there. As one German philosopher says, we're always ahead of ourselves. You know, we can see that, can't you? See some people walk along like this their heads projecting forward, yeah, always projecting into the future. Sometimes we'll visit the past in the ways that Pascal suggests. 
So in a sense, that's the problem. Two and a half thousand years ago, I think the Buddha also saw this as a problem, and he lived in far less sophisticated societies in many senses, even than the 17th century in which Pascal is writing. But he saw this as one of the inevitable things that in a way perpetuates some of the distress that humans experience. This idea of all this future planning, yeah, always planning for something that might never arrive, yeah, always saving up for something, and not experiencing what is here at this moment in time. Um, I'm going to read you another poem later on, I think, which again will sum this up. So, in a sense, the Buddha saw this two and a half thousand years ago. He saw this was something that psychologically we do. Yeah. Notice one very telling phrase, I think, and, and you know, if I'm correct in what I surmised about what Christine's going to talk about, um, I think she's going to deal with this in depth, is the present usually hurts. It's somehow distressing a lot of the time. Yeah. But that is, in a sense, a little bit of a reductionism, isn't it? that the present usually hurts. It's usually mixed. It's kind of mixed with hurt and joy and all sorts of other things. And, you know, in the early days when Buddhism was first discovered in the West, in the early 19th century, it was considered to be incredibly pessimistic because it started off by looking at a problem. You know? Within the traditions, um, the Buddha often is spoken of as a sort of almost spiritual healer. Um, he starts off with a diagnosis. So when you go to see your GP or go to see a practitioner of any sort, actually, you don't want to be told what's right with you. You want to find out what's wrong with you. You, know, you go for a particular problem, don't you? Then there's a diagnosis offered. You know, then hopefully there's a good prognosis to it. And then there might be a regimen back to health. And actually, what I've just described to you is something which is usually considered to be the starting point of all Buddhist investigations, which is something called the Four Ennobling Truths. There is a problem, something hurts, it's distressing, yeah, it keeps coming back. However, there is a cause to it. Yeah. There is something which actually causes this problem. There is a good prognosis, actually, we can overcome this. And there is a regimen back to health. Yeah. So it's quite a nice little, it's, you know, how canonical this is, I'm a little bit unsure of, but certainly it's one that's used within the traditions even to this day. This idea of the Buddha as a spiritual healer, somebody who, in a sense, addresses our problems. You know, he has, he's very, very problem-oriented. He comes to us with our problems and says, you know, there are certain ways. And in that regimen back to health, we find something called samasati, yeah, we find lots of other things as well. We find another seven limbs to it, but one of them is called samasati. Yeah, and it doesn't work independently of those other limbs. It actually works in conjunction with those other limbs. But I want to focus on this samasati. Samasati, by the way, is usually translated as right mindfulness. Yeah. That's the usual standard translation of this. Sama, I think, means something more like appropriate. Yeah. What, is, what is fitting? what is more appropriate in each circumstance. And I think in that sense of the appropriateness of the mindfulness gives us, in, in a way, not just one form of mindfulness, you know, which is, in a way, that we can see as almost homogenized, but different elements of mindfulness which are applicable to different situations. You know, does this make sense? So we've got something that I call more of a contextual mindfulness. 
And mindfulness is appropriate in certain situations and might not be appropriate in other situations, but we can apply, if you like, another wing of that to it. And this is very much the way that um, we can look at the way that mindfulness is taught in the canon, in this very huge body of work that supposedly represents what the Buddha taught over 45 years. Quite a long teaching career, and particularly when you're plodding around on foot around northern India. You know, it's a long teaching career. I want to go back a little bit and just examine this term mindfulness. You know, it's, there's, there's what I call a ubiquity of mindfulness these days, isn't there? You know, it's everywhere. You, know, you find it everywhere. And in some senses, I think it's started to, because it's become such com common currency, it's started to lose some of its potence, I think, as a term. So for those of us particularly who are concerned with mindfulness and perhaps using it in our work, utilizing it in our work, I think for our own benefit, we need to hear a little bit more about what that word, what really is hidden by that word, by this word mindfulness. I mean, I'm say I'm not going to get rid of it um, simply because it's too much part now of our language, isn't it? However, one has to bear in mind that in certainly historical terms, it's a relatively new word. You know, it was actually coined around about 1881 um, by somebody who founded a society in Oxford called the Pali Text Society. And these were the first translators of this material. I mean, some earlier translations had gone on. But um, they started to use a vocabulary of words which actually has got sedimented into often the ways that we speak about meditative traditions and what goes on in Buddhism. And it's still there to this day. And mindfulness is one of those words. So it's not actually that ancient as a word. The word, as many of you will know, I'm sure all of those who've, you know, who I gather there's quite a number of you from Exeter here who've been on Christina's courses and those who've been with me, and perhaps even Jaya here as well, will know that the word that's used um, traditionally is the word sati, you know, hence samasati, sati. And this is the word that we translate as mindfulness. The word sati has a bit of a history. Yeah. Let me just give you a little bit of historical context before I go into the real content of what I want to talk about. A little bit of this historical context is, A, the one thing you need to know is the Buddha utilizes a vocabulary in his own languages um, where he basically takes language that's already around in northern India of the time often used in the religious traditions of the time and basically perverts the meanings of them and twists them around, often for his own usage. Yeah. So he doesn't invent a vocabulary. What he takes is an accepted vocabulary and utilizes it in a particular way to make other points in other ways. So sati is one of these words that he utilizes. Yeah. This might be terribly boring to you, but I hope it does put a bit of flesh on it. So sati is one of these words. Actually, there's an equivalent in the languages of northern India of the period, which is the word smirti. Yeah, it's actually, you know, when it gets made into this other language, which is the canonical language, which is Pali, then it becomes sati. You don't really need to know about that. But the word that's used is smirti. And this word is actually used often in these early Indic languages to refer to something which is remembered. Yeah. particularly in terms of historical memory. Yeah. So, for example, in the Indian tradition, there's a whole class of different textuality 
one of which is supposedly, in a sense, heard or revealed, and another which is remembered. And so it has a sort of quasi-historical sense to it. And some of you will know these texts. I mean, it's some of the long, longest poems in the world. And there's a big one. I always remember being in India when they actually televised it. It was uh, 256 episodes of the Mahabharata. <laughs> yeah, this enormous poem, which actually says about itself, what's not in here is not worth knowing. <laughs> it actually says that about itself. It's huge. And there's, uh, there's also another poem, which is called the Ramayana, which is actually another big, long poem. These are epic poems of the Indian tradition. But the point I want to make is they are, have the have the sort of status of quasi-history. You know? They have the status of that, and they're called smirti. You know, they're called smirti text, something remembered. You know? And what is remembered, actually, is a lot of teachings about morals and ethics, you know? some things that I was talking about last night. There's a sense also, in that sense of memory, of remembering and also learning as well. You know? So the Buddha uses this term. So that's just a little bit of background, just to place it. So the Buddha uses this term. So it's a term that's in common usage at the time. He uses this term in order to describe something which is going to be going on in the present. Yeah? Something which is happening right now. And he's still maintaining within his usage a sense of recollection. A sense of recollection. So, I think you've heard Christina already say, present moment recollection. Yeah. In a way, this is a direct translation in a phrase rather than one word of what this word sati means, this word that gets translated as mindfulness. It could also be present moment awareness as well. Yeah, you can play between the two of them in translation form. What it's actually bringing is to which what it's bringing to mind is the idea of recollecting something which is happening now, not something which is happening in the historical past, but it's also still coupled to the sense of learning something from this. Yeah. This is this is a piece that I think often gets lost in the whole discourse around mindfulness and even in eight weeks courses is sometimes a sense of not only are we learning to be in the present moment and touching on experience which is happening in the present moment, rather than projecting ourselves and planning for that happiness in the future, but it's also learning something at the same time. We're beginning to recollect and learn. There's a lovely term with, it's one of my, actually one of my favourite little bits of Pali language. It's a, a term called apalapana. Some of you might know this word. Yeah, just try it. It sort of trips off the tongue quite nicely. But it usually has a sense of not drifting away from something. But it has another allied, a very ancient sense of learning something directly from that experience. By staying with something, you learn from it. And I really want to embed that in that sense of what we're doing in mindfulness in, this, in, the, in the more traditional sense is we're not just watching, if you like, let's use some of the images that are used in the MBSR and BCT. We're not just watching clouds in the sky. We're not just watching a whole series of cast of characters moving across our stage. We're also learning something about what we see in that experience. 
However, that's not to dismiss this sense of being able to observe the panoply of characters or the, you know, the, you know, the various cloud formations that we're seeing, or you know, Mark Williams often refers to the kind of weather conditions at the time. What's the weather conditions at the moment in your mind? Yeah. But it's not just to see that, but it's to learn something from that. And to learn is also, there's a big, big learning here, is learning to be present. Yeah? And I think we all know, even in just a brief day such as today, we all know that our minds are not under our control, don't we? We all see that. You know, I think I used a little phrase this afternoon, we suddenly discovered that the mind has an autonomy which our autonomy has no control over. <laughs> yeah. There's another way of saying that phrase, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, which is the mind has a mind of its own. Yeah. Yeah, so you're all familiar with that. So, but it's that ability to learn to stay present because there is something deeply important about that presence. Something deeply important. And I'll go into that. Um, perhaps towards the end of the talk, as to why we do this. Why would this be so important? The Buddha was once asked um, by another teacher at the time, another religious teacher who came along and he saw all his you know, monks and nuns and that, um, looking pretty contented. And he said, you monks and nuns all look fairly contented. What's going on? And he said, they learn to live in the present. They're not projecting into the future. Yeah. So here's a little answer which I try to flesh out as, as we move into this talk. So mindfulness, recollection, being in the present, gathering ourselves. There's something actually wonderful about the English word recollection, isn't there? To recollect. Yeah. I have the images of, of, of Christina's sheep running all over the hillside, you know, and your little sheepdog herding them all in. You know. Actually, the poet I'm going to read you from actually has a poem which you know, says, Thoughts are sheep. You know. I, I'm the watcher, the keeper of the sheep. Yeah. So the idea of recollection is to take that scattered flock and to bring it back into some gatheredness. Yeah. So that's another dimension of mindfulness that we find here. A gathering of our minds from scatteredness. Fragmentation. I think this is not just a, it's not just, just a contemporary problem. It's a problem probably for human minds for millennia. It is the sense that our minds very, become very scattered very quickly. And the more demands that are made on us the more likely that we are to find ourselves with that terrible term, multitasking, you know, which basically is usually a recipe for not doing anything properly, you know, because we become scattered over such a wide area. And what this sense of recollection is, is of gathering that, collecting ourselves, bringing something back from that fragmentation to a degree of wholeness, you know, not an enforced wholeness, you know, not a fixation, but a gentle, loose gathering of something into collectedness. And I hope you can see this as what is at least part of what is going on in mindfulness. So it's not concentration. It's that gatheredness, that gathering of the mind. And we won't get anywhere in any form of mindfulness unless we can 
I'm using the contemporary term here, unless we can learn to gather our mind to a degree. So that's one of the very bases of that. The ability to, if you like, almost palpate what is actually happening for us. Yeah. What is actually going to touch in? We use this phrase, don't we, often? To touch in with our experience, literally to touch it, to touch that experience. I would also suggest, and perhaps this is something I might pick up at some other point in the week, that to to touch is also to be touched by something. And that can be means emotionally too. To touch in with something is also to reciprocally be touched by it. I suggested this even in the lead into this afternoon's meditation. This is what we're doing. The world is touching us as we are touching the world. And an awful lot is following from that uh, in the ways that we interpret that sense of touching, although this goes unrecognized a lot of the time. And so the most primary form of this sense of gatheredness and being able to, if you like, palpate experience is what we might roughly call simple awareness. A simple form of awareness becomes aware of what is actually going on here. Yeah? This is our, one of our basic questions. I, I've often started retreats, particularly when I was teaching on my own here years ago. I often used to start with retreats. Well, here's your mantra for the week. What the hell is going on? Yeah. There's an assumption that we know because there's this intimacy, isn't there, with our own so-called experiences and thought patterns, that we know what's going on? Often we don't, because we haven't really touched into it, because again our minds are often projecting into the future or dwelling in the past, but very rarely are we here. So one of the things that we do in that simple awareness, and again I want to just quote something to you here, again, not Buddhist by any means, in the sense of starting to slow things down. One of the things you will notice here in this Igaya house in a week such as this is almost an enforced simplicity. We try to minimize everything that you're engaged in. So speech goes, we've asked you not to engage in writing and reading and all the sort of usual distractedness um, to put away your mobile devices and your connectedness with the world. And one of the things you find from that sort of enforced simplicity here is that things start to slow down a little bit. Might be quite a lot of agitation in the early stages, but as we gradually move into this, things start to slow down. And I think that's a very profound thing that's actually happening, because unless we can slow down, I think you probably notice this, that, you know, our thoughts and our experiences are so quick, aren't they? What we generally find is ourselves reacting. We don't find ourselves being able, in a sense, to touch in to what is going to cause that reaction, you know, thereby having some degree of choice from that movement, again, the kind of language we would use in MBSR and MBCT, but very much there in the ancient tradition, to move from a sense of reactiveness to responsiveness. Responsiveness is choice, reactiveness is, in a a sense, almost fatalistic. 
I deliberately use that word, although I think it's a little of an overstatement, in the sense that I'm going to continue to react to particular stimuli unless I can actually see what is going on. To see what is going on in ordinary life is really difficult, isn't it? Have you noticed this? When you're embedded in your work, you don't find myself, am I going to get angry here? You just get angry. You don't find, but I've often said, you know, I don't find myself desiring a chocolate bar. I usually find myself eating it. <laughs> yeah. But what you get a chance with doing in, you know, in this enforced simplicity, in this evocation of this mindful attitude, this recollection here, is beginning to start to slow things down. The novelist Milan Kundera, uh, some of you might know his work, a very famous work that was filmed, which he hated. Uh, which was called The Unbearable Lightness of Being, but he wrote something about the novel, and in this, in, in this book about the novel, he wrote this. He said, speed, the demon of speed, is associated with forgetting, yeah. with avoidance. Slowness is associated with memory and confronting. Yeah. It's really interesting, isn't it? You know, when we're engaged in speed, we're in forgetfulness. So if there's a lovely juxtaposition here, isn't there, between our normal state, if we're in our speediness of ordinary life, we're also often in forgetfulness. Yeah? And the sense, and what are we forgetting, is our sense of being. Yeah? That's what gets forgotten. Caught up in tasks, caught up in roles, caught up in all the sorts of things that we almost inevitably happen when we're out there with our families and our jobs and everything else. There is almost always an element of forgetting. So much so that sometimes we can feel quite um, distanced and alienated from ourselves because of that. Yeah. Because of that whole process. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lovely, um, well, I wouldn't say lovely, but it's, there's a particularly, I think, telling phrase in one of Kierkegaard's journals in uh, you know, the um, Danish philosopher Søren uh, Kierkegaard, he actually says, he said, I went to a party tonight and I was the life and soul of the party. Witticisms dropped from my lips for the whole evening. I came home and wanted to shoot myself. <laughs> I think we possibly, not to that extreme, but I think possibly we've all known that sense of forgetting ourselves here. That sense of forgetting ourselves, being caught up in a role, moving with speed in that role. I want to finish the quote from Kundra. He says, we move slowly when we want to listen to ourselves. We move slowly when we want to listen to others and the world around us. We move slowly when we want to accept ourselves. Yeah. The rush, of contemporary, uh, the rush of contemporary life overwhelms us and our ability to observe, to hear, to step back and to wonder. Society would like to blow out the tiny flame of memory. I would suggest to you that if you're involved in mindfulness in any way, it's quite countercultural. <laughs> yeah. It really is. It's really quite countercultural in that sense. Because what we're attempting to do is slow down. And that first aspect of slowing down 
whether this be in your daily practice, if you have a daily practice, which probably most of you do if you're involved in, in, in teaching or learning mindfulness in a particular way, as one of the you know, good practice guidelines, then we're starting to slow down. Yeah. We're starting to recollect ourselves. We have more spaciousness for others in that. We touch in and we listen to ourselves a lot more. Yeah. Much greater sense and capacity to hear ourselves here. Not in an egotistical way, not in a narcissistic fashion, but in a fashion that is a responsiveness to, if you like, almost a cacophony of voices that can be within, but often they drown out the genuine voice because often those voices are the roles, the must, the shoulds, I ought to. All of those things that we tell ourselves. And of course, often in the West, in particular, that ever-present sense of the carping critic, the inner critic within us. All of this is within, in a sense, that simple slowing down of simple awareness, getting a purview or an overview of the landscape of the what is going on here. Immediately, I think, we start to get that sense of the what is going on and are evoking something which has come up so many times, I think, in all three of us in different ways have said this, of being interested. Yeah? Interested. I mean, the word that actually is used in, in, in the Pali is really, and gets translated into English, and strangely enough, it, it retains the same meaning, almost the identical meaning, uh, both in the Pali and the English, is a sense of ardency. A word we hardly ever use in English these days. A sense of ardency. Do, you, does, do people understand this word, know what it means? Ardency, sort of almost passion. Passionate interest. It's not a kind of lukewarm, I'm, hmm, I'm kind of vaguely interested. Yeah. It's, it's a sort of passionate, you know, being drawn into. It literally comes from a Latin verb, which means to burn. Yeah? It means to burn itself. Um, the Pali comes from exactly the same, atopi. This word, um, tapas, some of you might know this if you've ever done any yoga, tapas is usually associated with austerity. Um, but it's sent, meant to burn up impurities in the body and the mind, a sense of burning passion. Yeah. It's considered also in ancient Indian texts to be the burning creative force, both behind the universe and the individual. Yeah. So there's a lovely sort of synchrony between these two words, both the English word you know, coming from a Latin basis and the Pali word, um, obviously, which is embedded in the Indian tradition here, which is we start to evoke an interest, yeah, an interest. But, and I want to perhaps place this at this stage of the talk, because I think it's really important, this is not just paying attention. Yeah? This is not just paying attention. There's a big difference between these terms. There's, not, there's two different terms for a start-off, in Pali, between paying attention and being mindful, if I'm going to continue to use that rather than my phrase here. Being attentive to something 
um, is considered to be something that goes on with every act of consciousness. Yeah? And is ethically variable. I can pay attention to that which is you know, ethically unwholesome or unskillful, but I can also pay attention to that which is ethically wholesome or skillful. There's no sense of, of you know, where it might land you know, in attention. But it's there in every moment of consciousness. I cannot be conscious without being attentive in some way. We can hone this, we can develop this, um, but it will always remain ethically variable because I could really develop my attention on something very unwholesome yeah. if I wanted to yeah, and, and really create it as a skill. I could become a really, really skillful lock picker. Yeah. It requires a lot of attention, doesn't it, to do something like that? Yeah. Or a sniper. But what you will not find is a mindful lock picker or a mindful sniper. Because there's one element that is in mindfulness, which is, I think is, is there, and this is particularly within a late, slightly later tradition, which is actually mindfulness is always wholesome. It always pulls in other wholesome mental factors. And particularly, and this is where I've been going with this, where I'm, where I'm going to take you, it comes in with a sense of care, which is usually summed up in terms of kindness, friendliness, and compassion. Yeah? So if you want to put it, what's the difference between mindfulness and attention? Mindfulness cares. Yeah? Cares about its objects. Yeah? And that's nice, again, to make a little connection between the kind of languages we're using here in these ancient languages is that, for example, to be curious, the word curiosity arises from Latin to care <laughs> for something, cura. Yeah. So, when we start to engage in this practice and start to develop this, in even in the simple form of awareness, which is often likened in the similes which are used in the text, to somebody standing on a high watchtower overlooking a landscape. Yeah? Overlooking and seeing what's going on in that landscape. This is the kind of image that's being used. That's our initial starting place. In a sense, nothing else within our if you like, toolbox of the various forms of mindfulness that I mentioned at the beginning that might be appropriate in some contexts and not appropriate in other contexts can happen without that simply being aware. So our starting place is a friendly, interested curiosity that in a sense palpates our experience. Yeah? Touches in with our experience. But does it with a way that is ardent about what it's doing. So when we come to the practice itself, something that's really important is when you set your intention. Yeah. This is the reason why we hold a posture, isn't it? You know, I suggested this earlier on, that we embody an intention. An intention which actually is sending messages, or the posture is sending messages to the mind about remaining alert, attentive, 
awake even, at the bare minimum, to what is actually going on here. And giving us that ability to engage in that recollection, to recall and to gather the mind when it goes off. And it will do. We know that, don't we? I mean, how many times has your mind gone off today? How many times? I was teaching with somebody quite recently. You know, some, of you might, some of you might know him. He's, he's taught here a number of times as well. But he says, you know, everything's more interesting than crummy breath. <laughs> yeah. Everything is more interesting, isn't it? Apparently. Until you start to really look at it. Yeah. And still you start to really touch in with it. What's going on in that breath? Yeah. Just as a mindful reflection here, A, your breath is your life. So if I'm not interested in my breath, I'm also not interested in my life. Now that doesn't mean breath fixation, (laughs) but it means, in fact, as many of you will know, know, for example, in the early Indian tradition, um, the notion of the atma, was often, the sense of the self, was often associated with the breath. Yeah. It's still embedded there in German, actually. Atem means to breathe. Yeah. The verb atem in German. So it's there even in our Indo-European languages here. So our breath is our life in some ways. And that breath that you're breathing right at this moment will never return. Yeah. It's one and it's unique. And there it goes. <laughs> yeah. So there's something, I, and I hope just by reframing it in that way, you can see that in that simple awareness of that what is going on, what is the texture of that breath? What is the length of that breath? How does that breath manifest? Where, you know, Chris, going back to what Christine was saying this morning, this morning, where does it begin? What is its middle and where is it ending? Because that will not return. Another breath will arise, hopefully. <laughs> you know, worry if it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, hopefully another breath will arise, uh, and then we can engage in that same, in a sense, investigation into how this breath is at this moment. So that's touching into one element of our experience. Notice it's a present moment element of our experience. As I think probably all of us sitting up here have said at one stage, this breath that you're breathing at the moment is never tomorrow's breath. It was never yesterday's breath. It's always only the breath of this moment. And so our first sense of really beginning to embed ourselves in this practice, and we will explore this more in the mornings, but I just want to touch in with this very briefly this evening, is we start to touch in with bodily experience, of course, which the breath is. Remember, it's not following the breath, it's the sensations of the breath. Those physical sensations are associated with this breath. That simple awareness of what is going on here. And we can extend that out. So that even when our minds are so-called distracted, I don't actually like the word distracted, it's not distracted at all, it's only distracted if I want to stay fixated here. When our minds, in a sense, are captivated, captured by something else, we can then explore that. What's going on here? Where has my mind gone? What was so interesting? 
And then we start to get, in a sense, a sen- a, a, almost a feeling for the topography, if we do this for quite a while, of the landscape of our mind. Yeah. I'm sure for any of you who've meditated for any length of time, or cultivated, to use a better term, cultivated this practice for any length of time, will notice recurring patterns. Yep, has that struck you at all? Yeah. Sometimes it becomes laughable, doesn't it? Oh, God, not that again. Yeah. As it comes, something you thought you'd dealt with 30 years ago comes up again, or however long it may be. Yeah. These recurring patterns that we begin to see. This is beginning, if you like, to be that overseer, to look over the landscape of our minds and to get a sense of that landscape, of the what is going on here. So that's one category. And there's many ways we can nuance that, and hopefully I've done a little bit of that with you here. But there's also another category, which is, if you like, we could broadly call it a protective awareness. Yeah? A protective awareness. And I think this is a good foil to what I call the rather simplistic, I don't say necessarily that any of you are doing this, but the rather simplistic often explanation of mindfulness, which is, and you know, Basically, if something's hurting, just stay with it. Yeah. Just stay with it. It will you know, it'll eventually solve itself. Yeah. The traditional approach to this is not so simplistic. You know, that mindfulness is not just sitting with everything arises, that arises. Sometimes there's a lot of wisdom in not sitting with things that are there. You know, if something really, really is hurting, and you know you can't deal with it at this stage, it makes sense not to go there. Yeah. So this is, in a sense, a corrective to the idea that we just sit with everything. Yeah, no matter how painful, no matter how difficult, no matter how horrendous it may be, that we just sit with it. This is often likened, if I can find the quote, this is often likened to a gatekeeper at a gate if I can find the particular quote yeah very simple quote this is what the Buddha says he says suppose a king had a frontier city with strong ramparts, walls and arches and with six gates the gatekeeper posted there would be wise competent and intelligent, one who knows how to keep out strangers and admit friends. How to keep out strangers and admit friends. This wise gatekeeper. Guess what the name of the wise gatekeeper is? Sati. (laughs) So as you can see, it's painting a slightly different picture, as I say, to that idea that we just let everything in. Yeah. Just as we wouldn't recommend, particularly, I suppose, somebody who perhaps had a, an, an alcohol problem and were, was you know, um, basically going through rehabilitation necessarily to walk into a bar. Equally, we don't necessarily have to let in our worst traumas. Yeah. That that gatekeeper, this wise, 
sati knows what to admit and knows what not to admit. Yeah, knows what is destructive and knows what is, in a sense, there to harmonize and promote growth. Now, uh, the interesting thing is that I think this wise gatekeeper, it's not there in the text, but the wise gatekeeper is not saying never. What it's saying is not now. Yeah. Now, that, that not now might be a long way off of being able to come to that trauma, perhaps, if it is a trauma, and a sense be able to approach it, yeah. to be able to deal with it. Yet, there is always that possibility. But it's the recognition, and this is the wisdom of this, that it might not particularly be useful at this moment to let in that. Yeah. Notice again in the eight-week program when we say, you know, particularly in MBCT, we're dealing with the difficult. You know, when we ask you to introduce a difficulty, we generally go, not your most difficult thing. Yeah. <laughs> Don't we? You, know, you usually say something of moderate difficulty yeah. or someone of moderate difficulty. Yeah, so you let something in that you know you can handle. Yeah. Not the insurmountable, huge, mountainous problem that makes you feel like Sisyphus, yeah. pushing it up the hill. So we're letting in something that we know we can deal with. And this is the protective awareness. This is one of the functions of sati, is to have that sense of protecting the mind. Yeah? This is very wise. I hope you can hear this. This is very wise. I mean, in a, in a way, it's almost commonsensical that we should let in what we know we can actually handle, what we can deal with at this moment in time. Yeah? Rather, by, rather being eaten up by something that we know that actually we're not going to be able to solve. It just is so deeply, deeply traumatic in our lives. And this can go across a vast spectrum of different experiences. But it's that sense of bringing sati to bear on knowing what I can actually deal with at this moment. Yeah. There is another form of sati spoken of, which is more of an investigative form. Because actually, in, 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 you know, that sounds very plausible, doesn't it? You know, the gatekeeper, I'm going to have my little sati sitting on the gate who's going to stop people coming in who are not that good. Sometimes they get through. <laughs> yeah, they slip in. Yeah. We're the best men in the world, we can't keep traumas at bay. Yeah. Or as I used to like to say in a psychoanalytic way, you can't keep a good repression down. <laughs> yeah, it will come up at some point. Yeah. In other words, it slips, under, yeah, it slips through the gate, gets under the radar, whatever metaphor works for you in this case. It gets in. Now, in this particular instance, again, there's a simile, and there's, you know, there's similes associated with all these different forms. And some of the similes are really rich are used in the early texts. Some of the similes to describe this are very, very rich. Uh, this particular one is described as somebody who has an arrowhead embedded in them, you know, ancient warfare and all that. Got an arrowhead embedded in, the shaft is broken off, the arrowhead is deeply embedded in, possibly has poison on it, 
Um, but the person who's there to remove it doesn't know how to remove it immediately without in some ways investigating, investigating the size and the dimensions of the arrowhead. Yeah. So they use, he uses, and what actually still sometimes, particularly now with gunshot wounds more than anything else, uh, is a surgeon's probe. You know, a little piece of metal which you insert into the wound to actually discern the dimensions, the shape, the depth of the wound, and everything else, you know, to find out, if you like, the size of the problem. Yeah? That surgeon's probe, again, is referred to as sati. It's probing the dimensions of the problem. It's investigating. And implicit in this, in this sense of learning from that, is learning how best to affect, in some senses, in, in the simile, the removal of, obviously, the arrowhead, with causing the least amount of damage and leaving, and this is the interesting part, leaving the least amount of poison left in the wound. So it's not going to get infected and, you know, again, the whole thing is going to flare up. Yeah. So part of the job of sati is, in a sense, to investigate if they have got through the size of the problems that are there. Yeah. And I, I would say I think we probably all have them. Yeah. And using that metaphor, I think in many senses, I think there's very, very few people who can probably pass through life who say they're not wounded psychically in some way. Yeah. Through backgrounds, upbringing, experience, histories, you name it, you know, um, illnesses, whatever, there is a lot of wounds to the psyche. Yeah, and some of those will be very, very powerful. You know, they have, in a sense, got past the gatekeeper. They're already there. You, know, you can't just push them to one side and say, I'll, you know, I'll come back to you later. They're there now. They're ever-present. They affect our experience. They affect and infect our present experience at the moment. So how, in a sense, best to investigate those and ways of dealing with this, and unfortunately I haven't got time to go into this tonight, but ways of being able to investigate and see how we can deal with these problems. This is, again, part of the job of sati. So we're starting to move a little bit further away, aren't we, from just this idea of simply being aware. And all problems will be solved. There's your panacea. You know, simply by being aware, all problems... No, problems are not solved. First, we have to be aware that the problems get through, that we have the problems. Sometimes they need to be parked. Sometimes they need to be dealt with directly. But they will be there anyway, because in a sense, we, we all carry wounds. You know, so how do we deal with those wounds? How best to effectively and skillfully deal with our sense of woundedness? Yeah. That woundedness, by the way, often is referred to as dukkha. Yeah. Is dukkha. And of course, as we know, that, you know that out of that dukkha, we, there's all sorts of compensatory behaviours that we engage in, madnesses that we engage in because of it, as ways of trying to compensate for that feeling of pain, hurt, and just general dissatisfaction with life. Now, I'm not going to go into that tonight because that's not what really I'm talking about. 
But I think it's useful for us to hear that we are all often operating out of that, out of that sense of woundedness. And so this particular form of mindfulness is really directed towards that, that sense you're already wounded. Now, how do I deal with it? How do I investigate it? How do I investigate it skillfully? You know, without exacerbating it, without trying to rip out the arrowhead, you know, without knowing its dimensions, and then causing myself more pain and hemorrhaging. In this. So that's what that form of mindfulness is directed towards. There is also a final form of mindfulness. Don't worry, I'm getting towards the end. <laughs> There's another form of mindfulness, which is actually in a sense with um, d- about deliberate concept formation. Sounds really strange. You know, this is very different from the kind of mindfulness that you're probably all used to. Mindfulness of that, you know, based in some sense even, if not totally, on some means of primary awareness. This is actually saying sometimes what we have to do mindfully with great awareness, with recollection and learning, is actually reform our thought processes. Yeah? As ifs. Yeah? We're going to be engaging in one in the next couple of days. Um, some of you might, I'm going to give it by its Pali name. Some of you will know this, probably some of you have done this. Uh, many of you might have done this. It's called metta practice. Yeah? Metta practice. The practice of friendliness. Yeah? Often referred to as loving kindness, but I won't go down that route. We'll talk about that when we get there. But it's really the practice of friendliness. Yeah? One of these primary virtues. Now, it's not to say that you have to have that emotion. It's saying sometimes we have to act as if. In other words, you conceptually hold, in this case, in the formal practice, a whole set of different cast of characters, some of which are easy because they're good friends, they're people you know have helped you, you but some who are much more difficult, people who you're indifferent to, people who you find difficult, as if I'm friendly towards them. And this is the idea, this sort of, is a sort of cognitive restructuring. Yeah? This is what we're engaging in, a cognitive restructuring. Yeah? And as we know, particularly through things like CBT and that, that sometimes we have to engage in behaviours in order sometimes to affect, if you like, the, that cognitive restructuring. Yeah? So in other words, do it. Yeah? but don't necessarily think that you're going to immediately have the emotion. Yeah? But we act as if we're doing that. And that's, in a sense, shaping and inclining. By, by inclining the mind in that particular way, you start to shape the mind into a particular sense of being able to hold individual situations and scenes by deliberately reforming our conceptualizations around them in a very skillful way. Yeah. So I hope we see, you can see that we've moved from that kind of very, very simple awareness yeah, into something which, in a sense, generates a toolbox. And I mean, actually, this last one, which I've given very short shrift to in the end, there's actually a lot of different ways of being able to hold that. You know, things in your experience. Yeah. By focusing in, for example, not on what is wrong, but what is good. 
That might be another way of being, being able to hold situations. So in other words, if you've I don't, got an illness or a sickness or a disability or something like that, focusing in not on what the problem is, but what is going on that's actually good for you. you know? What is going on that's good for others. You know, these are ways in the sense of generating counter thoughts to that spiral of thought that we can get into and be hooked into which will pull us into similar places. Yeah. Does it make sense? Yeah, so we're holding and generating particular thoughts for a certain... You know, they're pragmatic. Yeah, there's a certain pragmatism to this. You know, to generate um, and shape our minds. Because if we don't do that, our minds are being shaped anyway. They're being shaped by habitual, reactive patterns that we generate again and again and again. And one of the big things that you find in, that's spoken about in all forms of Buddhism, often seeing almost metaphysically, is a sense of recurrence. Yeah. Of going round and round in circles. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's sometimes, sometimes how it feels. Yeah. That can often be the feeling tone of feeling that we're going round in certain circles. They might not play out in exactly the same way, but there are similar things that are happening in our experience again because we've ever never actually shaped our minds in a particularly skillful way, but just allowed those patterns to keep repeating themselves in this way. And what we're doing is interrupting that process. So we've moved from this sort of simple sense of awareness, which actually none of the others can take place you know, without that simple awareness. So that's really important. So I'm not underestimating that. What I'm saying is not all the problems are solved through that simple awareness. Yeah. And what is, in a sense, the whole purpose of this? Yeah. Mindfulness in itself, well, in the traditions, mindfulness is dedicated to one thing, um, as is the, all the Buddha's teaching. Um, who've, who's got a little bit of a mention in here tonight, but I haven't put him at the forefront of this. But he says the teaching has one, one taste, which is a taste of freedom. Yeah? Yeah, a freedom from compulsion, in particular. Yeah, from the compulsions that we are driven by. So it's not freedom to, which is often the way that we associate freedom in the West, is a freedom to do anything we want to. This is more like a freedom from yeah. yeah, it's more like those sort of health foods. You know, it's free from. <laughs> yeah. So we're free from what actually starts to, in a sense, feed those particular compulsions. Yeah. Then there are all sorts of psychological conditions, which is not the kind of main point about this talk, but. This is dedicated to a freedom which in some senses starts to wake us up. And the whole point of mindfulness in the sense of recollecting, beginning to palpate and touch into what is actually happening, to be in the present. Not to say that planning is unimportant, of course it is. You know? And I often say, you know, none of you would be here if you hadn't planned to get here. You had to do that in order to do that. You had to put aside time. You had to arrange things. You had to you know, book your trains if you came by train or plan your journeys. Planning was absolutely necessary. It's an important part of it. The question is, do you want to be doing that all the time? And do we do want to be doing that in relationship to those things that are really important? That I think all of us 
in a sense, crave, and it's not a bad craving here, because craving often gets a very bad press in Buddhism, um, the craving often to have a degree of contentment and happiness in our lives. So what's wrong with that? But what it's saying is, in a sense, you can't plan for that. You can't plan for happiness. You can't plan for contentment. What you can touch in with is the meaning that it presents to you now. That is the place that we discover it, in this nowness. Yeah. And there is all sorts of experiences because of our distractedness that are going on that are replete with meaning that we miss out on. That we miss out on. I'm going to finish on just two poems, and it's very quick. Two very, very simple. In fact, I'll, I'll reduce it to one. And I'll give you the other one another night. This is by a poet called Fernando Pessoa. And uh, he wrote under about 17 different pseudonyms. He was Portuguese, sometimes he wrote in English, uh, a lot in French, a lot in German, and sometimes in Portuguese, his own language. Yeah, so he, he wrote in a lot of languages. But here's the poem, it's very simple, and I'll finish off on this. Beyond the bend in the road, there may be a well and there may be a castle, and there may be just one more road. I don't know and I don't ask. As long as I'm on the road that's before the bend, I look only at the road before the bend because the road before the bend is all I can see. It would, do no, it would do me no good to look anywhere else or at what I can't see. Let's pay attention to where we are. There's enough beauty in being here and not somewhere else. If there are people beyond the bend in the road, let them worry about what's beyond the bend in the road. That, for them, is the road. If we're to arrive there, when we arrive there, we'll know. For now, we know only that we're not there. Here, there's just the road before the bend. And before the bend, there's the road without any bend. <laughs> the phrase I'd like you to take away with tonight, out of all of this, and this is what mindfulness is dedicated, there's enough beauty in being here and not somewhere else doesn't always feel like that, but it helps us to touch into this by beginning to really, as I say, begin to see much, in a much greater sense, the totality of our experience and not just focusing on the problems. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, for your attention this evening. Okay, what we've got on the menu... <laughs> Let's uh, have a, a brief walk, um, bathroom break, and then we come back in here at quarter two for a further sitting, just to finish the evening. It'll be a fairly short sitting just to finish the evening. So thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.